they almost enter fields that they're passionate about, but they're not extremely well versed in. Because if you go by the book, you're not able to mentally take those leaps and then back it up with just, you know, intuition and going hard and hustling. You're listening to the You Might Be a Badass podcast. I'm your host, Rachel Todd, an average everyday girl with a nine to five job and a passion for storytelling. This podcast takes you behind the scenes in discovering truly inspiring personal success stories from all kinds of individuals and how they paved their way into becoming their own version of a badass. I speak with entrepreneurs, nine to fivers, stay at home moms, athletes, and everyone in between. My goal is to discover the different depths in which we define what it means to be successful. Success means something different to every person. And ultimately, if you're pursuing your passions and living life to the fullest, you too just might be a badass. The mind of an entrepreneur has always been fascinating to me. It never seems to be settled on just one thing at a time, constantly thinking 10 steps ahead of the task or project at hand. Today, I sit down with Adam Tischauer, a true entrepreneur who has gone from pro hockey player to founding multiple successful businesses, one of which even made its big debut on a little show called Shark Tank back in 2015. Adam's passion for what he does definitely shines through in the way that he tells me about each conception and execution phases of his businesses, reliving the infancy stories of when he first made an impact in somebody else's life and solidifying his desire to grow a business from a successful idea. In this episode, you'll hear key tips on how to get your business off the ground, including how to validate your idea, the need for constructive criticism, daily mind tricks and activities, when the right time is to say goodbye to your corporate job, how to properly evaluate the worth of a business or idea, and literally so much more. Welcome, welcome, Adam. Thank you so much for joining me today, fresh out of the out of the car on your road trip (laughs) my pleasure thanks for having me and yeah I've been spending a lot of time in the car listening to the dog barking the baby screaming um, or my (laughs) wife wanting to change the radio station so this is nice nice to chat with you (laughs) (laughs) well I appreciate you being here Um, just to dive right in tell us your name and your occupation my name is Adam Tischauer and I would say that I'm an entrepreneur. Easy enough. Did you always have that mindset to become an entrepreneur or uh, did that kind of come on later in life? I think I've always had it um, as part of my DNA. And, uh, you know, I, in high school, I started different businesses and same within college, literally, you know, little small you know, businesses. Um, but I think it's kind of part of my DNA more so than starting businesses that, you know, try and make me money. I've always been the type of person to get passionate about certain things and want to really, really focus on those certain things. Mm -hmm. Um, And if I'm not passionate about it, I don't really put in much time or effort. So I think if I worked in an environment where I was just kind of punching a clock, 
I don't think I would really get ahead because I would not find the passion in it and then not put in the time and the effort in order to get ahead. Yeah. I think that's probably a good rule of thumb, right? Is just kind of follow along what, what that passion is for you. Yeah. Um, perhaps easier said than done, but, but I like that you, you followed that instinct. Yeah. Thanks. I mean, I think it's part of kind of part of your DNA, you know, like for, for me, I, I grew up a, a big athlete playing hockey at a high level and I spent a lot of time training and focusing on my sport. Um, and then there were other things that, you know, came up in school or whatnot that I just, you know, different courses or whatnot that I just didn't care as much about. And I obviously did not put as much time in and didn't get as much reward from. And I think in those instances, I've kind of learned a lot about myself where those things that do connect with me, if I really put my mind to it, um, I could accomplish, you know, whatever I set out to accomplish. Sure. I actually forgot. I did know that about you. Were you a, a professional hockey player? I was, yeah. I played in college and then I played a little bit of pro hockey. Um, I played in the minor leagues for the Toronto Maple Leafs and the New York Islanders. So I definitely had a, uh, a unique experience playing in the minor leagues and the pros, but uh, it, was, it was an amazing, amazing time, amazing experience for sure. How many teeth did you lose? <laughs> I was fortunate enough where I didn't actually lose any teeth playing hockey. However, uh, because of genetics, I'm missing two teeth. So I do have two implants um, and I get to say that I'm missing teeth, but uh, people assume it's because of hockey and it's actually a genetic reason. That's hilarious. I'm actually missing four teeth um, and is the reason why I had braces for like 15 years because mm -hmm. I, I opted out of the implants and just had to like anchor Move everything on. forward. <laughs> I, my mom did that because she had this, the same issue and I myself opted for the implants. However, when you're an athlete, they don't put real implants in, especially when you're a hockey player, because in the event that they get knocked out, oh, sure, yeah. you're paying a lot of money twice. And so I always <laughs> had these temporary implants. And so I also had you know 10 years of braces. So I guess we have that in common. Yeah, that's too funny. <laughs> so after, I, I want to talk about kind of that transition. At what point did you stop playing hockey and kind of pivot into potentially your, your first venture. And we can, sure. we can get into some specifics on what, what that business was, but I would love to hear kind of that transition for you. And, and when you decided to stop one thing and, and move sure. on to the next. So I, I played hockey for when I was six to when I was 25 or so. And then when I was 25, I made the decision to, stop playing hockey or retire if you you know um and it was a very challenging decision because that was my identity i was the jock in high school i was the athlete throughout college that was my brand that's what people knew that about me that made me unique and mm -hmm. that you know made me stand apart from kind of uh other people i guess um and you know making a decision to stop being yourself is very difficult. And so um, that was a challenging time for sure after I ended hockey, figuring out what made me me. What was the new me going to be? Um, 
And especially when everyone thinks of you of that, you think of yourself as that, and you've been successful at that. Um, it's very challenging to have that ident quarter life identity crisis um, to figure out who you are and and what can make you unique. Um, and and it came about to me where I was you know playing in the minor leagues and realizing for myself that you know I that that it it was going to be very challenging to make it to the major leagues, to make it to the NHL. Um, and did I want to go through the struggle of the next five or so years of, of putting it all out there while I was also seeing my friends, you know, starting in the business world and making inroads and, and, and doing well for themselves while I'm on, you know, 24 hour bus trips um, and in these small towns across America. Um, and, and I quickly realized that, you know, the professional hockey world perhaps wasn't for me in the event that I wasn't going to make it to the NHL. Um, and, and so I got traded once and I got traded again, you know, within a span of a couple months. And it was just not the pro athletic life was not just cracking out what I had seen on TV and what I had always hoped for. And so the decision was, was kind of made for me, you know, where like if you're getting traded in the minor leagues from team to team and not becoming an all-star in the minor leagues, there's a very good likelihood you're not going to make it to the majors. So what's the point at, at that point? Um, and so, the, you know, I made the decision, but it was ultimately made for me that, hey, you're not going to make it to the to the NHL. Um, go go try something else. And so uh, made that, you know, very difficult decision. Um, and I was playing in, uh, where was I? I was in South Carolina in, um, in uh, Columbia, South Carolina. And then made that decision as I was getting traded to yet another team and decided to, to end my hockey career. And I drove 17 hours straight home. <laughs> And wow. didn't even like break or anything besides filling out my gas tank. I would just was, I was done. I was, yeah. I was over it. It was mentally, physically, emotionally draining, uh, going through getting traded, but also making the decision to end your unique quality in life and, and your brand. Um, and so I moved, moved back home with my parents and saw friends working in New York city. So I decided to move to New York and through some friends and whatnot, I was able to get a job in finance and then I worked in finance for a couple of years and then 2008 financial crisis happens and I lose my job. Um, and that's, was the first kick in the pants saying, um, you know, maybe, you know, maybe some of my entrepreneurial ideas that I was having, could get tested. Um, and so in 2008, during the financial crisis, is when I decided to kind of launch my first startup. Gosh, that sounds like a, a huge roller coaster, like you said, from an emotional standpoint, just kind of taking almost a little bit of a beating of told, you know, I that's the one thing I've never understood about the sports world is obviously it kind of comes with the territory, right? You get traded to a new team and you just kind of pick up and go. But yeah. I feel like that sounds like such a, a a hardship of just knowing, okay, they don't want me anymore. And I right. literally have to uproot my life to yeah. go do the same thing just somewhere else. And I was doing that as a single young guy, 
but I was seeing people who were in their 30s with a wife and kids playing and slugging it out in the minors doing that as well. And that was kind of my aha moment that, hey, if I stick around for the next five or 10 years, that very well could be me. And I did mm-hmm. not want that. Gosh. Um, well, so I, I do know, obviously, a bit about one of your bigger projects. I don't know if it was your first project or your mm-hmm. first entrepreneurial idea. Can you, can you walk me through that, that test and learn sort of approach that you were just alluding to? Uh, uh, that I was alluding to, sorry, with relate, related to what? Which um, I guess. <laughs> when, when you were just talking about uh, after the financial kind of mm-hmm. crisis, you were, you were saying, okay, maybe this is, maybe this is the right time to start yeah. testing out some of okay. these, these ideas and seeing if they, they could be something. Yeah, so it was a obviously a unique time, kind of a similar time to the economic issues that we're going through right now. Um, and co- when there's downturns and people are getting furloughed and let go and whatnot, um, often breeds ground for creativity and rebirth and new ideas. And 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 so I was kind of in the midst of that. I you know had now had two years of uh, in the financial world. Um, working on Wall Street. And I also had all of these friends who were in the minor leagues of hockey now starting to make it into the major leagues. Um, And they would reach out to me and say, hey, I just got a signing bonus or now I'm making all this money that I could never dream have dreamed of making. What should I do with it? And Mm -hmm. I was not a financial advisor. I wasn't licensed to be one, but there was some sort of value that I had where I could understand what the athlete was going through and understand that they didn't know what to do with their money. But I could also now start to understand how the financial world worked. And I had some relationships on the ground in the financial world that uh, could provide advice to these guys who were young and starting to get successful. And so I decided to launch a business that was called the athletes financial advisor and we did we did just that we were kind of the middleman between financial institutions who knew what they were doing with money and hockey players who didn't necessarily know what they were doing with all the money that they were making and so while i wasn't giving financial advice my unique space that i think i kind of carved out was that i could provide the transparency on both sides of the equation the hockey Mm -hmm. guys didn't necessarily know what right questions to ask Um, And the financial guys didn't know necessarily how to deal with the hockey guys. And so I had this unique duality of skill sets um, that could be that could work out in this little uh, niche that I was attempting to to build. Yeah, that's um, that's super special. And to your point, it's always nice for somebody to be able to kind of come down to, quote unquote, your level and be able to have a, a speak the same language, uh, mm-hmm. if you will. Um, because yeah. to your point, you know, on either side, nobody, nobody really knows what to do or what to say unless they've been through it. Um, so that's pretty special. I, I do want to talk about, I don't know if I can even say if it's your biggest idea, but it's, mm-hmm. it's, or not idea, business rather. Yeah. It's certainly one that I know about, um, through your lovely wife. Um, <laughs> But if we can talk about Camp No Counselors, um, I think first and foremost, maybe you can describe what it was and and maybe the specifics on the 
the experience of, you know, what it what it entailed. Sure. So Camp No Counselors was and is a, a summer camp for grownups. Um, we would rent out kids' summer camps uh, all across North America in their off-season, but while it was still nice and warm out. And then we'd have adults, usually, you know, average age of about 30 years old, come out with their friends for fun weekends back at camp. So on average, we would have about 200 adults at each of these camp weekends where they would sleep in the bunks, eat in the mess hall, play sports and arts and crafts all day long. We would have bands come out, have an open bar in the evening so you got to party. And our motto was play like a kid, party like a grown-up. Um, and the impetus behind it was really uh, a way to enable adults to forget about the stresses of adult life and just to be silly again and to play and have fun um, and do something different than just kind of spend each weekend kind of going out to bars or do things in the city because we were all I was living in Manhattan at the time. Oh, my gosh. Honestly, one of the coolest ideas I've ever heard. I am a camp brat, you could probably say. <laughs> I grew up um, basically living at the YMCA, um, you know, on a on a day to day basis, but also would go away, you know, for the week uh, and stay in a cabin and do the whole thing. So when I first heard about this, I was like, that is honestly genius. <laughs> did, did you grow up going to camp as well? Or where, where did that spark for you? So uh, yes, but my mom went to sleepaway camp for eight weeks every summer, starting when she was six years old um, till she was 15. So I grew up with her singing her camp songs in the house and hanging out with her <laughs> camp friends as she still does to this day. Um, so it was kind of in my family for sure. Um, and then I was a big athlete growing up, obviously being a hockey player, but I played tons of different sports and all summer uh, since I was very young, I would go to sports camps. Um, and so going to sports camps, which were really day camps, was filled my summer for years and years and years. Um, and then I only got the opportunity to go to sleepaway camp for one summer, um, which I define as like, that's real camp was when you go away from your parents and you have to, you know, <laughs> you get all of the freedom. Um, but you also, um, you know, have the independence that comes along with that. Um, and, and then my formative, I guess, business training was also as an uh, apprentice and then a counselor in training and then an instructor at a day tennis camp. And then I ended up becoming the director of that tennis camp as well. Um, so my, my first, you know, times of freedom and independence were as a kid at summer camp. Um, but then also my first times thinking about a business and running a business were uh, related to summer camp as well. Yeah. Um, you had said that you take over day camps that were sort of like on their off season. Mm -hmm. um, that for me is kind of one of those ways of like just being a creative thinker and how to make something work. Um, and I'd love to hear more about how you take something that's seemingly, you know, more or less a, a fun idea, right. Of, mm -hmm. of getting people together to gather. And how do you know how to kind of turn on certain levers in order to make mm -hmm. it more of a, a profitable, profitable business? Sure. Uh, that's a great question. And I think the, the 
biggest way to do that is almost to go in a little ignorant, <laughs> a little <laughs> yeah. blind. Because um, if you know, if I knew all I know now, what I if you didn't know then, you know, you could analyze it to the point of never taking that leap of faith. Um, and, you know, oftentimes I've, you know, I find through like my friends who are entrepreneurs and whatnot, they almost enter fields that they're passionate about, but they're not, ex- you know, they're not extremely uh, well-versed in because if you go by the book, you're not able to mentally take those leaps um, and then kind of back it up with just, you know, intuition and going hard and hustling. Um, mm-hmm. So I think that was the first thing that, you know, that I didn't really understand the, the business of the camp world at the, at, the, at the get-go. But the purpose of the first getaway um, up to a summer camp was really just to gather my group of friends together because in a unique uh, way. In a setting because we just hadn't seen each other in a while and I was getting kind of stressed out by, by work. Um, and so I thought it would be a fun weekend getaway. Um, what that turned into was people all being very positively affected by this weekend experience and this weekend getaway that I didn't anticipate. And so when I was getting the feedback from my friends throughout the course of that first camp weekend and then after the weekend, you know, it was very fulfilling. It just made me feel like I was doing something that had purpose that mattered. Mm -hmm. And that was kind of the first time that I felt that since my days of hockey, where what I was doing mattered. Um, and while I don't, you know, not everyone necessarily agrees that playing a sport matters for the greater good of the world, um, I, I personally felt that I was impacting my camp participants, the people who were coming to the camps, um, I was impacting their, their lives, their world in a positive way. They were leaving um, the weekends happier or with new friends or with new experiences or something like that. And that really mattered to me and it made me feel good um that's that's one thing turning that into a business is another thing um but if i could work really hard every day about on something that i really liked and that was passionate about that could impact the world in a positive way i was willing to try really really hard in order to make that a business of mine so that I could do it all the time every day. Sure. Yeah. Um, I mean, that, that yeah. certainly makes sense. <laughs> yeah. So that's when I was like, okay, let's, if I were to think about this differently than just a friend getaway, how could it be a business? How would I market it? Who would be my core customers? Who, who, you know, how would we charge people for this experience? What would mm-hmm. be fair what would what would enable us to still make people leave the weekend having fun um, when there was a corporate infrastructure behind it? Um, how could we, you know, ha- you know, like when you think about the airlines, for example, most people have a negative, but we, obviously pre-COVID as well. Most people have a negative thought. They're like, oh, they're going to nickel and dime me on every little thing. It's going to cost a lot of money, and it's going to be an anno- annoying experience. But ultimately, airplanes started off in a place where you're like, 
oh my God, you can fly me from coast to coast in a few hours. <laughs> that's crazy. Cool. How genius. That's like absolutely genius and amazing. Yet no one thinks about that right now. Everyone's like yeah. pissed off at the airlines. Um, <laughs> and so there's a happy medium between keeping people happy and providing a mind blowingly amazing service. Mm-hmm. And I think the airlines lost that. Uh, but they're they're ultimately providing a mind-blowingly amazing service. And so what I wanted to do in everything from how we priced the experience to how we had the experience feel uh, that it that it never got that you never lost that mind-blowing amazing feeling that we captured in that first camp weekend when it was not a business, when there were zero corporate intentions behind it. It's I I have to say, I really connect with the the airline analogy. Um, and I think attaching an emotion to it probably plays a big role. I don't, I, I know that they're obviously struggling right now and, and some of the narrative that they're putting out there, right. Is like, we're, we're all in this together. We're all going through this together. And everyone's mm-hmm. kind of snapping back like, well, where where was the we when my baggage was two pounds over? You know right. what I mean? So it's right. a little bit of a disconnect in in what they're trying to say and what they're trying to put out there versus what they're providing. Um, and it's and challenging. So I, it's t- it's yeah. totally hard to uh, walk on both sides of that line and to provide an amazing service, but also to make it work financially. Um, yeah. So... I get it, but you're totally right. You're totally right. Yeah. Um, so I know that you were on Shark Tank as a entry or a, as a starting point in the earlier days of Camp No Counselors. Um, I would love to hear a little bit more about how that worked and mm-hmm. and maybe some some of the intricacies, if you don't mind. At what point did you did you make it on the show? Like what sure. what's um what's the criteria involved for that? So I had um so we, we I had my first we hosted the first camp for just me and my friends and friends of friends. Um the September over Labor Day weekend of twenty thirteen. And then mm-hmm. in May of 2014 is when I decided to make this a business. Um, So we had hosted actually two summer camp for grownups events with friends and friends of friends and then friends of friends of friends. And it kind of started blowing up without me thinking about it as as a business. Um, And then in, in May of 2014, I was like, okay, let's turn this into a business. And then uh, at the end of that camp season, which was essentially one camp in May and one camp in September, um, we got a piece of press. Um, and I guess someone from Shark Tank saw that piece of press and they proactively reached out to me in like November of 2015. Oh, wow. And so, yeah, it was pretty, uh, no, sorry, November of 2014. November of 2014. So we were still in our infancy. We had done like a couple camps. Um, We now had a website um, that I kind of built on my own with scotch tape and paper clips. (laughs) And um, 
And so they reached out to me saying, hey, would you want to apply for the show? Um, I had to think long and hard about it, but it was going to be the, an amazing opportunity to get, you know, advertising like that for a company that has made no money, has raised no money, has mm -hmm. nothing. So I, I thought that um, that it could be a, a great opportunity. So I fill out all the paperwork. I signed all of the long contracts, signing my life away. And then, um, and then six months later, so it was a six month process of interviews and video submissions and whatnot. Wow. So even though they reached out to me proactively, um, I, I still had to go through the full process, but I personally think like they put me on the top of the pile just because it was a unique idea that they wanted to have rather than having, you know, another similar type company that you see on the show, you know, every episode. Mm -hmm. Um, so then it was May 2015 when I got accepted onto the show and then I shot my episode in June of 2016. Um, and then the show didn't air, sorry, it was June of 2015 when I, when I shot it. So it was a month after they told me that I was going to shoot the show. Um, and then we didn't air until May of 2016, almost a year later. Um, so yeah, so it was, they reached out in, sorry to be confusing, in November of 2014, they told me in May of 2015 that I was going to be shooting an episode in one month later in June of 2015, I shot that episode. And then in May of 2016, almost a year later is when my episode aired. Yikes. So the business was at a very, very different point um, mm -hmm. when it actually aired versus when I shot the show and had to answer all the questions from the sharks. That's crazy. I had no idea the, the delay in that, I guess, maybe it comes comes along with more you know production type work but um that is a really dragged out process and like you said especially with businesses that are you know just starting out and trying to kind of get their name out there i would imagine yeah. that it's a very different kind of scope like you said you know a, a year can make a world of difference oh big time i mean we like I think we were a unique case because I shot, they, they do two sh shooting seasons. They do one in a week of ju in June and then one a week in September. And then the season starts in September and then it goes right through until the following May. And so I was one of the first people to shoot and one of the last people to air. Wow. So it was just very kind of a unique situ situation. So, you know, some certain people shoot and then they air a week later. Um, but it was just a, a unique situation for me, but it was funny because our pricing had changed by the time I was on, you know, by the time it aired, um, our number of locations and number of camp weekends had changed by the time we were on the show. The economics of the whole thing had changed by the time it aired. <laughs> so, um, we had, uh, so it was just very interesting to kind of see how much can change in an early stage startup in that short amount of time. And then how, uh, you know, how then that can impact the business um, and skyrocket it kind of from there as well. Totally. I think I read that you, um, in your pitch, you gave the sharks um, s'mores and mimosas. Yes. 
I did. <laughs> genius, genius, genius. Gotta um, always win them with the stomach. <laughs> exactly. That's what, I mean, the producers kind of help you with your pitch along the way. And, mm-hmm. and I was like, well, a big cornerstone of camping uh, is, you know, is the fire pit. And at summer camp for grownups, the duality of being a kid, but also the ability to drink and be an adult. So I thought yeah. that, could be, that could be good. And I found out that they shoot all day long they're only there for like a week but they shoot like eight hour long segments in a day um and so they get hungry and they only have a little lunch break and so the the producers were like yeah you know they often do really enjoy when people give them snacks um so that could be a way to win them over how do you determine how much you need from them i think that's always the piece that i've always been curious about it's cha- yeah, it's challenging. Yeah. Sorry, go ahead. <laughs> I cut you off. I cut you off. Sorry. You can you can finish your question. <laughs> no, no, you you got the gist. I I was just curious about the the investment versus how much of a a, a percent that they're mm-hmm. going to be that they're going to own. Sure. So, um, in an early stage startup, it's very difficult. It's 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 an art. It's not a science at that point. Oftentimes, vis- businesses are valued at many different ways. One of the ways that a business is valued is based on their profit and a multiple of their profit. So, if we made you know a hundred thousand dollars of profit this year, uh, other companies in our industry have sold at uh, a multiple of 10. So 10 times 100,000 equals a million dollars. Therefore, our value of if we were going to sell the company would be a million dollars. That's a very simple way Mm -hmm, of mm -hmm. figuring out a company's valuation. But in an early stage startup, oftentimes, you're not profitable, yet you have a lot of value. You're making something that's amazing, but you haven't been around enough to really scale it up and drive profit. And so... Mr. Wonderful on Shark Tank often does try to value companies that are on the Shark Tank based on their earnings. Um, and you as the entrepreneur in the, shark, in the Shark Tank, you need to be able to validate the fact that, hey, you're worth more than your earnings because your earnings are nothing. Um, and so it's tough to go with a standard valuation. So how do you do it? You kind of a little bit pick a, you know, shoot, shoot darts at a dartboard and pick it. Um, you also try and figure out um, how long of a runway you want in order to test things out with your business. So, um, so if, if you need uh, your hypothesis is that if you spend $50,000 uh, of advertising, that'll result in $150,000 of ticket sales. And we only have five camps. And if we sold a hundred and $50,000 of ticket sales at those five camps, then we would sell out all of those five camps. So that is kind of how I backed into my mm-hmm. math was, okay, let's take all of this money that we're going to ask for, put it into advertising. If we're able to achieve, uh, you know, $150,000 of sales from 50,000 in advertising, um, then that's enough to make it through the next 12 months, which is a year time horizon. Um, and, and so you don't want to give up so much equity where you lose your say in the business. And the way that you give up equity is by asking for more money. Um, yeah. and, and so what my you know, happy medium was, let's ask for enough money in order to try test out our hypothesis. And if our hypothesis is correct, we will last another 12 months um, and we will be better suited 
for kind of the next season. And so that's that's how how I did it. But for any early stage startup, it's very it is very difficult to know if the amount you're raising is the right amount, if the amount you're giving up is the right amount. It also comes down to like desperation. Do you will your doors yeah. will you have to close your business down if you don't bring on any money? Well, if that's the case, you're much more willing to drop your valuation in order to bring in some money. Yeah, sure. I I always feel so bad for people who, you know, maybe they don't fully kind of grasp how to how to piece all that together and so they're asking for, you know, kind of this obscene request from the sharks and they they get just ripped apart. I mean, I'm sure some of it is, you know, theatrics or a little bit more of, you know, mm-hmm. trying to make the the show feel a little bit more dramatic, but I just feel so bad for those people. Yeah. Um, cuz you put all of this work and and, you know, to your point, you're spending months submitting, you know, this this application in order to just be considered to be on the show. I mean, it right. it comes with the territory, but just, it is, just a yeah. thought. <laughs> it is a risk for sure. And you definitely feel bad for people who get ripped apart on Shark Tank, the TV show. With that being said, if you come across as a nice person and you're trying to do good, um, even if you get ripped apart on the show or you don't get the investment, I didn't get the investment on the show, it could still po- and likely will still positively impact your business. And so there is a big silver lining on the TV show Shark Tank, where even if you don't get the money, you're going to get the exposure that you couldn't afford as it is. Um, And so, again, as long as you try hard and have a smile on your face and are are attempting to do good in the world and be a good person, um, the worst case that's going to happen is you're going to get a whole bunch of eyeballs on your business that had never heard of it before. And and that's that's a good thing. Yeah. Um, so let's, let's talk about you now, you know, kind of walking away from Camp No Counselors Mm -hmm. and you are now looking at your, your next opportunity. Are you able to, to share what that is? Sure. Yeah. So now I'm, uh, actually, so my wife had, uh, my wife and I had a daughter. Um, she's now 20 months old. So I spent a lot of last year and like fully focused on being dad which was absolutely amazing. So I, I was almost full-time um, full parent all last she's, year. She's an uh, angel, by the way. She oh, is so adorable. Thank you. <laughs> I think so, too. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, uh, and right now I'm on to my next endeavor, um, which is called IndieFit, I-N-D-I-F-I-T dot C-O. Um, it's, a, it's a marketplace in the fitness world, in the fitness uh, business. Um, and it kind of the idea behind it spurred out of COVID. Um, and it's kind of COVID obviously has changed the, the world, um, Everything. Yeah. and accelerated certain industries and crushed other industries, um, and changed a lot of industries. And just like my first startup, like I was mentioning in 2008 was during a time of great economic crisis and change. Um, now is a very similar uh, economic world um, uh, 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 and transition that we were going through in 2008, which most people look at it as a as a horrible thing. And it is extremely horrible. Don't get me wrong. But also there is um, the ability to look at certain uh, places uh, as opportunity. Um, and, and so what I've tried to do is kind of look through that lens during these the darkest of days. Um, 
and, and see where the opportunities lie. And my passions, um, one of which is sports as and fitness, as it's kind of clear with my background from, you know, college and pro sports to the active kind of lifestyle of, of playing sports at camp all day long. Um, and, and so kind of noticed a big transition and change in the fitness world where all of these amazing fitness instructors were getting laid off, um, or furloughed from their gyms. Now all of the gym, you know, a few months later, now tons of gyms are closing their doors for good. Um, if they do have classes available, they're at limited capacity. So there's a huge amount of instructors right now that are trying to find work. Um, and what we saw at the beginning of COVID was lots of instructors were hosting Instagram live classes and just trying to get their, their classes out there. Um, and we noticed that a lot of these instructors love the interaction with their class participants or their students, their fitness uh, students. Um, and they didn't necessarily have the platform or the know-how and the money to build websites and build, you know, interactive platforms so that they could virtually host their classes um, or they, so that they could just build their brands. Um, and so what we've done is created this platform as a way to empower those fitness instructors who had lost their jobs or been furloughed. We've been, we're trying to empower them to go independent to be able to run their own businesses, to be able to host their own classes by giving them the simple tools necessary from a website to booking mechanisms, to scheduling, to virtual online or in-person classes, whatever they feel comfortable doing. Um, so I kind of think of it kind of like ClassPass, except we're not hiring or bringing on any gyms. We're mm -hmm. only bringing on independent instructors. So cool. Um, how do memberships work? Is it kind of on a on an instructor by instructor basis or is it kind of a flat fee? So it's right now we're very much in its infancy. And so we're trying out different models and different mechanisms to see gotcha. what works for the instructors and what works for the students. Um, but right now it's based on drop-in fees. So there's no subscriptions. One of the things that we found in talking with tons of of class participants is when you when you get locked into a monthly membership that automatically re reoccurs, it, it, you feel just like that, like you're getting locked in. Now, wouldn't it be nice to be able to have a little bit more flexibility in your gym membership? And so what we wanted to do was you just pay for one class at a time. Um, you can buy a five pack or a 10 pack if you like, but in general, the majority of our customers are trying out different instructors. They're finding different people that they love to connect with. And ultimately, for me, when I would go to the gym, uh, you know, I'd go to a soul cycle class. I'd fall in love with one particular instructor and I would only go to that instructor's class, mm -hmm. you know, every Tuesday at you know 6 p.m. or whatever. Um, I wouldn't go to all of the available instructors that SoulCycle had, which I'm sure they were all amazing, because I had a, a specific enjoyment from this one instructor's style of teaching. And so if we can enable people to find their favorite instructors, which was kind of naturally happening as it was, but have the instructor make the lion's share of the profits, then I think we're doing good. And I think we're providing these people um, a new platform for the new fitness world, which is going to be different than it was in the past. Um, and, and so we're trying to enable flexibility on both sides of this marketplace um, to make it fair um, and to make it interesting for everyone. 
Yeah. I think the one thing that's, you know, to your point, that's come out of the fitness industry during, you know, in this post pandemic world, it's that it needs to be customizable, right? Everyone's learning that they seemingly can work out in the comfort of their own home, but it's just right. a matter of how they're going to adapt to different methods and different ways of now exercising. Um, mm. So I like that a lot. It's it sounds like a really awesome idea. Is it an is it an app or um, web based? Right now right it's now. web. Right now it's web based. Um, okay. Ultimately, it will become an app. But again, we are in the very early days of this thing. It's <laughs> sure. live. It's live. Sure. We have instructors using it. It's going great. It's all, it's it's really really cool. Um, but it it is still in. Um, what we built it on is a no code platform meaning you kind of like a Wix or a Squarespace, but specifically for marketplaces. Um, and then ultimately we'll want to build our own one from scratch once we're, we have the funding to do so. Sure. Well, look forward to keeping an eye on it. Thank you. Yeah, uh, it's been a really fun uh, thing to, to sink my teeth into as it kind of taps into a number of different, you know, passions of mine. And, and as I kind of mentioned throughout this, you know, podcast is that I find that I personally do best when I'm passionate about something to the point mm -hmm. where I will make it work. Like I, I'm naive, uh, naive to a, to a, a positive, I guess, um, where I, do, you know, I, I'm going to figure it out. And, uh, and when I, when I, and not, you know, if I was working or running a startup or starting a startup in the healthcare business, which I, I like and I am interested in, I don't have that level of uh, part. It's part of my DNA that that will yeah. that it that I think it really takes in order to um, to go very hard um, at launching and creating something from scratch because that does take a lot of effort and energy and mental power. Um, and to do it all for also right now, no salary, you know, and that's, that's uh, a, a big decision to make. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, to that end, uh, I'd love to get into more, you know, general business questions. Um, sure. What would you say are some common misconceptions of being an entrepreneur? Uh, misconceptions. Um, I was going to say, things that are true <laughs> um, misconceptions about being entrepreneur. Hmm, it's a really good question that you have to know the space that you're getting into front and back. You have to be an expert in it. Hmm. I think sometimes, like I had said, it's almost an advantage to go in blind to a certain degree or naive. I would say probably more realistically um, because you don't, know what the book says and sometimes the book hasn't looked at all angles of the problem sure that makes sense what do you what would you say to somebody who has you know this light bulb genius idea but doesn't know like where to start where to put pen to paper First, I would say don't quit your day job right away. Um, <laughs> there's lots of hours in the day and the night for you to figure out if it's the right thing before you take that leap. Um, and, and I know on Shark Tank, they often say, we're not going to invest in 
because no one's working on a full-time capacity. Well, it's, it's more often than not smart. Um, I think what you yeah. should do is that first step in the evenings or on the weekends, while you do still have your, your, your nine to five, is to validate that idea. And what validating the idea means is to do research, to talk to people in the industry um, that you're interested in getting involved in, to do market research, to see how large that potential market is. In the event you've got 100% of that market, how big is that? Because sometimes getting 100% of a market is not enough to sustain a business. Um, yeah. and, and to be realistic with yourself um, about how big the market is, what the people are saying, and actually listen. Um, I think that's the most important thing, that when you have an idea and you're passionate about it, you kind of talk a lot, you tell people your idea, um, and then you try and justify it when they have their perspective that might not always be in line with you. I think it's most important to listen to their feedback and actually take it in as valid, um, you know, constructive criticism or feedback um, without judging it or coming back with your quick response and your quick answer right away. Yeah, totally. From a habit perspective or, or kind of a day-to-day, do you have any non-negotiables, anything that you have to do during the week to set you up for success? And maybe that's, um, you know, a morning routine or some mm. sort of, you know, some sort of workout or, or what, what keeps you balanced? Well, before COVID, it was an mm-hmm. easy answer. I, you know, yeah. I, had, I had a routine. <laughs> Since COVID, <laughs> I've got, it's all out the window. Um, I would say in general though, um, you, you know, having some sort of exercise uh, on a daily basis is really helpful for me. And typically I like to do a workout, you know, like a run or a, or a lift of weights or whatever. But even if it's as simple as walking my dog or walking my baby, um, just getting out of the confines of your space, your house, because when you are running your own business, you you usually start it in your own house. Um, so getting outside, getting the blood flowing, um, and I, I, and I think that's very helpful for me at the beginning of the day and then, uh, doing a meditation. I, I use the app headspace and I think that that enables me just to focus on me for, even if it's just 10 minutes, um, it, it enables me to get centered and get focused before the day begins. And so I really like to do those two things. One is, is be active in some capacity, getting outside of the house, and two is is that meditation. It's so interesting. I feel like um, meditation is helpful for so many people in a, in a myriad of ways, but it's interesting to hear how different people are utilizing it, right? In terms of their their day and how how they're mapping them out, how yeah. they're mapping it out. Wow, I can't speak. Um, <laughs> for some people, you know, they can't meditate in the morning because they just feel like they have this to-do list, right. right? That they have to jump to before they can clear their mind. Um, it's fascinating. Yeah. yeah. And for me, I think it helps me uh, start off. I mean, yeah, I have a to-do list and I have all of these things also and it, they'll get done and it's just 10 minutes kind of thing. Um, yeah. But for me, it helps me have a routine to get centered before I dive in and have the craziness of whatever is in my email inbox or, or on my mm-hmm. desk. 
Um, and then, but ultimately what it is, is a way for me to stay even because in a startup, there's very, very high, exciting days and moments. And there's very, very low, difficult days and moments. And yeah. by, ha by, by having kind of meditation as part of my routine to get me ready for the day, it's like the last thing that I do right before I start my, you know, actual work that has these highs and these lows. Um, and so it, it's the last thing that I do before trying to keep myself even keeled all day long. Yeah. You know, you know, you're going to get there. So don't stress on it now. <laughs> <laughs> I hope. <laughs> Um, I, I always save the best for last. Yes. And I kind of teed this up with you, but for me, the term success, what I love asking this question is that it has a different meaning for every single person. Um, so what does success mean for you? Um, success for me means, um, doing something on a daily basis that I'm very passionate about that makes me happy. Um, and having that personal happiness or, or what I put out to the world, that product that I put out to the world, make other people happy as well. And, ha and, and have hopefully that make that be a trickle down effect or ripple effect where they then in turn make someone else happy from there. So it's really starts with, um, success is me making me being happy because of what I'm putting out into the world. Um, and that impacting other people in their level of happiness as well. That's very endearing. Make the world a happy place. <laughs> it is, it is a, a nice thing and I'm not, you know, a rocket science or rocket scientist or a brain surgeon or something doing something, something really, really impactful like that. But I think, you know, little, little smiles along the way are, you know, build up to be something pretty big. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Are there any, um, you know, social handles, websites, et cetera, where people can find out more about you if they'd like? Sure. Uh, my Instagram's, uh, Adam Tishauer, my name, A-D-A-M-T-I-C-H-A-U-E-R. Um, and IndieFit is I-N-D-I-F-I-T dot C-O. And that's both the website and the Instagram handle. Um, those are probably the two main places. And, uh, and feel free to reach out over DM or whatever. Um, but thank you so much for having me. This is been a lot of fun to reminisce and <laughs> and work through old businesses and old ideas and kind of it's always nice to talk through these types of things because you get so wrapped up in your daily life that you forget what drives you sometimes and you forget what what makes you tick without having great questions like you've asked today you know asked you <laughs> Couldn't have said it better myself. So thank you so much for joining me and sharing your your story and your your journey. It's obviously very inspiring. So appreciate you taking the time. Thank you so much. All right, that's it for today. Don't forget to follow along for more on Instagram at you might be a badass podcast and let me know your thoughts about today's show. 
and I'll see you again, same time, same place, next week.